find your why. Why is it that you'd like to make these changes? What are you looking to improve in your life? Is there something that you're hoping to achieve? Is there something that's really important to you, either in your family or more widely with the environment or with animal compassion? Is that something that's important to you? Are you hoping to widen your circle of compassion? Like, What is it that's making you choose these changes? And if you focus on that, that's also going to be really helpful because it's something outside of yourself that is hopefully going to sort of help keep you motivated where motivation will wax and wane. And it's not something that you do with willpower. It's something that you do with, I guess, a sense of your identity, things that are important to you. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well at Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. Today, we cover everything you need to know about plant-based diets. This episode has been requested by so many of you and with the rise of people going more plant-based and adopting vegan diets, I wanted to cover an episode around the do's and the don'ts of plant-based eating. Plant-based diets have been shown to help prevent chronic disease and treat heart disease, obesity, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes and even certain types of cancer. YouGov tracker data over the last two and a half years puts the size of the vegan population at around 2 to 3% and the vegetarian population at around 5 to 7%. A movement towards plant-based eating continues to grow year on year with record-breaking numbers of 605,000 individuals taking part in Vegan January this year in 2022. So to help me explore this a bit further around understanding how to adopt a plant-based diet and the do's and the don'ts towards it, I speak to Dr. Gemma Newman. She's a medical doctor and the author of The Plant Power Doctor, A Simple Prescription for a Healthier You. Today, we explore what it means to be plant-based, what are the pitfalls surrounding it, how can it help with a healthy heart, how was it linked to mental health, and what is the longevity of plant-based diets. We also cover environmental impact and sustainability, especially as lab-grown culture meat is on the rise and starting to hit our shelves very, very soon. We also look at lots of interesting studies from Oxford University, and we also delve deep into plant-based milk. It's a really interesting episode and you don't have to be plant-based to enjoy this one. Gemma, welcome to Live Well, Be Well today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really excited about this. It's been lovely to have an invitation onto your fantastic podcast, so thank you. I am so excited to have you on because we're going to talk about the power of plants. And when I was looking at recording this episode from a really high demand, actually, of our listeners saying they want to know more about plant-based eating, I couldn't think of anyone more perfect than you to come on. Obviously, you've written a book around it. You're a plant-based eater yourself. And before I want to get into your interesting story, actually, because there's lots of different avenues of you transitioning into plant-based, could we first of all just describe what does it mean to be plant-based? Because people throw around the word quite frequently now, and there's lots of different areas of actually, what does it mean to be plant-based? So being plant-based essentially means to be having predominantly plants in your diet. When you see plant-based products in the supermarket, you know that they won't contain anything of animal origin. And when people say that they're eating plant-based, you don't always know if they mean exclusively so, but often they tend to. When someone says they're having a whole foods plant-based diet, it usually means that they are eating exclusively 
plant products, usually in the form of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, lentils, chickpeas, oats, herbs, spices, nuts and seeds, and they're not eating any animal products. So it can be a bit confusing. And if you add in then the concept of veganism on top of that, that essentially is a lifestyle that aims to minimize harm to animals and the planet as much as possible. And so that also means other things in your lifestyle, like the things that you choose to buy and wear and clean your home with and put on your face and creams and makeups and things like that. So veganism is more about what you're choosing to exclude and plant-based eating is about eating more plants in abundance and so yes it's difficult to really understand those different definitions especially when people use the term so interchangeably but I hope that helps to explain things a little bit. Yeah absolutely I think there can be so much controversy around different types of diet now I mean you've got flexitarian which means you might live predominantly plant-based but have a small portion of animal products in your diet, fructarian which is just fruits. I mean, there's so many different angles of takes on eating more plants within our diet, but we know that there's benefits to eating more plants in our diet. And we're going to come on to, to what these benefits are. But first of all, you have such an interesting story about how you personally got into plant-based eating. Can you give us a small overview? I know there's so many different dimensions, such as your blood levels and weight loss and also influence from your husband. So would you best give the listeners a small chapter on how you managed to get fully plant-based? It is a journey for everyone, I think, when you decide to eat more plants. And very rarely do people jump in without any preparation. I think for me, it was a gradual process when I realized that my health wasn't what it should be. So I didn't really look after myself too much when I was a junior doctor. I was doing lots of late nights and long shifts. And I just used to grab whatever I could on the ward or in the doctor's mess. And I noticed just feeling really sluggish and tired. And I thought, I'm in my early to mid-20s. I can't carry on my career feeling this way, almost falling asleep at the dinner table. So I decided that I'd try and have a health kick. I exercised a lot more and I did what I thought society expected. So I started doing calorie counting and eating lots of chicken and fish and salads. And I did well with that. I lost a lot of weight. I gained a lot of energy and I thought that I'd cracked the key. You know how everybody tries Mm. one thing and thinks, ah, this is the key to everyone's health and longevity. (laughs) And that sounds like a low carb diet that you went on, which is predominantly protein and vegetables and salads. Yeah. Yeah. Carbs are bad. So I had to cut the carbs. That's what I had Mm. taken in from, you know, society, women's magazines, you know, things like that. So, And that's that's so interesting that you say that because you're also a doctor. That had that influence on you being medically trained is, is a really interesting point, actually. It is. And I do often share that because I feel like we're always learning. And when I was in medical school, I learned a lot about how the human body works. I did a lot of anatomy. I cut up human bodies, which I don't think happens so much these days. I knew a lot about what goes wrong in the body, how to help with pharmacology, surgery, um, medical innovation. There was a small amount of nutrition, but mostly around nutritional deficiency Mm -hmm. and how it can impact people, especially in the third world. So I think nowadays we know that certainly in the western world the effect of chronic disease autoimmune diseases obesity heart disease cancer these are the things that end up causing us the most harm and ultimately killing us uh, earlier than we would otherwise die so that's really what 
I've been aiming to focus on since then. But you're right. Early on, especially throughout my training, it was much more learning about every single thing, all the weird and wonderful, but not really trying to figure out how to apply that in my own life. So yeah, I did well. But I was really disappointed to discover that I had a raised lipid profile in my blood work, despite my seemingly optimal lifestyle and my exercise and my dress size and all the things that I thought made yeah, me feel... Yeah, because you went from a size 18, didn't you? Yeah. I think it was a size 8. So you had a dramatic weight loss. And when you yeah. say lipid profile, we're talking there about the LDL and HDR cholesterol levels that you're talking about. That's right. It's sort of antriglycerides, all of those lumped together in a lipid profile, which is the standard test that we would do here on the NHS. So I was really disappointed and I thought, well, I can't really do anything more than what I've done. And I sort of put it to one side. I thought, well, I have got a genetic risk of heart disease. My grandfather died young of heart disease. He was playing tennis and he just had a heart attack and died there on the spot. I didn't know it then, but a few years later, my father was going to have the same fate. Uh, he died young. I think it's young anyway. He was only 59. That and is it is young. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, as soon as I get to menopause, I'll take on the same risk. And I have that genetic risk there. And I put it to the back of my mind until I noticed my husband's endeavors. Now he's not medical, but he did want to do well with his marathon training. And so he started to research how he could run more efficiently because he kept on getting injuries and inflammation. It was really setting him back in his training. And he thought, well, what do the ultra marathon runners do? How can they run one, two, three marathon distances without experiencing the problems that I'm getting. So he looked at Rich Roll's book, Finding Ultra. He read the book by Brendan Brazier, who trained Hugh Jackman for his role as Wolverine and Serena Williams and people like that. And I think Scott Jurek as well, Born to Run. He's probably arguably the most well-known ultra runner of all time. Amazing and, book. Yeah. And he was really getting into this. He said, right, that's it. I'm going to do what they're doing. I've changed my trainers. I've, you know, I've changed my running technique. I've sought coaching. None of it's helping. I'm going to go fully plant-based. And I thought, oh no, you know, my, my first thought was we're never going to get invited to anyone's houses for dinner again. No one's going to know what to cook us. <laughs> and I just sort of watched curiously and it was amazing. He did so well. He did it by himself. And he was able to improve his marathon running time by 10 minutes. And I was just Gosh. blown away. It's insane, the difference. You're normally um, thinking a PB of maybe like 15 minutes and over an hour is incredible. Yeah, it really is. And it began to sort of plant that seed for me because I'm not particularly athletic. I'm not somebody that has a gym membership. I'm not somebody that really focuses on being an athlete as such. Having said that, I have run the London Marathon twice, which I still can't quite believe I've done that. But Wow, I would definitely say you're in that category. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, I think it's what you put your mind to and it's who you think you are, which we can come on to another time. Yeah. But I think for me... I was interested in my patients. I thought, if my husband can experience such a transformation in his health and he's really trying hard to run faster and recover more easily, what does the research show me? And I realized looking at the research that actually a fully plant-rich diet, a healthy plant-rich diet is great for athletic recovery. It massively improves recovery time between um, stints of exercise. And I thought, well, what about my patients? What about heart disease? What about cancer? What about these autoimmune diseases? Could it help with these? And I was really interested to discover 
you know, through my research that there were actually a number of medical conditions that could be improved using the power of nutrition and increasing the amount of plants that we eat. And it got me hooked then. I just couldn't stop reading. I kept studying and and then that led on to you know, my work with the Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, my creation of modules for the Winchester University courses, the, the book, obviously the research for the book took up a lot of time, um, mm. my podcast and all of that came from just that realization that when I applied this information with my patients, the magic truly started to happen. I could see how it was changing the lives of the families that I look after. And that's what we care about. We care about the people we love. We want to make sure that we have as much time with them, feeling healthy, feeling strong, not having to worry about their health, which is something that you can't really buy back. Mm. And so for me, that was really exciting. I thought I would just love to share that with as many people as possible. And that's why I'm here. How did you make that switch? So you saw your husband and I guess at the time, were you then eating what he was eating or were you just quietly observing? How did was... you actually make that transition yourself? So at that time I was observing because I wasn't sure how it was going to go. And then when I saw how well he was doing, <laughs> I thought, is there something in this? <laughs> so you know, I began to do that research and my cooking was generally healthy anyway. So I wasn't really using red meat particularly. So really it was mainly things like chicken, fish and dairy and eggs that I was thinking about maybe reducing gradually. And so, yeah, when he'd been doing it, he'd probably been doing it for about six months to eight months actually, before I decided to make that complete shift. And interestingly, when I decided to do it, I didn't really tell anybody because I wanted to feel like it was my thing. I didn't want to make a big announcement. I didn't want to feel like I'd sort of let myself down if I you know, hadn't quite managed to do it. So I thought, well, I'll just give it a try. No pressure. I'll just give it a go and see. And once I decided to make that commitment, in a way, it became slightly easier because I didn't have to make a new decision with each meal. Once mm. I decided, actually, I'm going to do this now, it didn't feel as hard as I thought it would. Sometimes it's the contemplation of it as well that makes it almost overcomplicated. You think, oh, I just can't, I just can't do it. Whereas actually, if you've made this decision, well, at least from my perspective, it, if I'd made the choice and I knew a few simple swaps, for me, it was just, okay, I think I can do this. And it took the pressure off as well that I hadn't really mentioned it to anyone before. I was just mm. pootling along doing my thing. It was about a month in when I actually even told my husband, I said, you know what, I've actually been cooking everything plant-based, you know, because I've been cooking mostly for the kids as well. And he said, really? I said, yeah. He said, oh my goodness. You know, because he hadn't really noticed because he was still doing his own thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, I felt really proud of myself in that point. And it helped me to understand, you know, how to go through that process. And the children also embraced it quite well because, again, it, it didn't feel too different. I was doing a lot of similar meals that they were used to. And so, yeah, it worked out really well. And then once I had the confidence in myself and I'd seen some of the transformation in my own health and I'd also seen it in my family members, I felt once I'd done my research around you know some of the studies as well I felt more confident to share it with my patients and again it was really life-changing you know to be able to see people reduce their blood pressure improve their diabetes reverse their symptoms of inflammatory bowel conditions reverse the symptoms of eczema period pains menopausal symptoms 
asthma. I mean, it was mind boggling to me how many different kinds of condition were improved. But then I realized, well, actually, it does make sense because we have one body and all the systems of our body are connected. And what we feed our body is the fuel that mm. provides all those building blocks, provides the amino acids, provides the all of the ingredients to make those healthy cells. So, you know, if you think about it, it does make sense, but it was a wonderful thing to see it in practice. Oh, I can really imagine. I think I work as a nutritionist as well when I look at people's diets and when you do add more whole foods in and you're cutting out those processed foods because sadly in the UK two-thirds of our shopping baskets are full of processed foods it's like putting the correct petrol in the car to allow it to function better and what actually happened from your blood results wasn't it is that your cholesterol levels and your LDL and your HDL they all actually decreased didn't they and you had a better lipid profile at the end of it from following this as opposed to when you were having a low carb diet. And I think that's a really interesting observation because playing devil's advocate here, I think a lot of people will sit there and think, well, I feel fantastic when I eat paleo or eat low carb. But actually you did see benefits, but the real benefits you saw was from your blood work. I noticed with my blood profile was that I had reduced cholesterol, reduced LDL. My HDL remained the same. And interestingly, HDL is supposed to be the healthy protein that carries the lipids around the body. So that being raised isn't usually a concern. That remained the same. And yeah, I think what's interesting and what you've rightly pointed out is that you can feel great on a number of sort of whole food diets. And I certainly wouldn't want to negate anybody else's personal experiences. I felt great, you know, when I was having a more low carb diet too. But for somebody like me and for many people, up to a third of people will experience a rise in their lipid profiles having a heavily meat-focused, low-carb diet. And that is known to be a strong risk factor for heart disease. And I think you know there has been some controversy around that, but the evidence is really clear and there's so many studies to show it. It is a risk factor. I was really excited to see that my risk factors were able to reduce on within just a month of eating plant-based. It was that powerful. Even when I had such high levels just, you know, with my optimal low-carb diet. So mm. again, I do share that personal story, not because it's just an anecdote, but because I feel like it connects people to understand well what it could be like for them and their family, but also the evidence is there really that mm. fiber and a plant-rich diet is really crucial to helping reduce our heart disease risk, which is our biggest killer in the UK. So it's important. It's really important, isn't it? Because from the British Heart Foundation, every three minutes, somebody is admitted to hospital for a heart attack. And that's a really high statistic. So if we can be working more on prevention, which is something you correctly pointed out in the beginning, you more work with when it actually happens, when diseases occur and actually how can you help them to stay alive and treat them as opposed to working more with prevention. And these lifestyle factors are such a big implementation to actually reduce and prevent rather than treat heart disease. And I think that's what's so important, especially because you had this within your family history, you were so much more aware of actually maybe what can you do to, to help the prevention of a heart attack occurring and you yeah. actually had fantastic results from these lifestyle changes. And I think it's a very important message for anyone listening is that you can hold your destiny in your hands in some degree, not to a whole degree. And there's other things that we're not saying eating plants is going to completely change your health and you're going to not be at risk of any of these chronic diseases. But these are just really good 
beneficial, positive steps to help in that process of reducing that risk. Yeah, exactly. It's not a panacea. I think this is a thing that is important to mention. You know, some people have uh, really taken this in and thought, well, you know what, I'm going to eat completely plant-based and I won't have to have treatments for X, Y, and Z. I won't go for my cancer therapies. And that's heartbreaking. I have to sort of really make it clear that these are important interventions for you and your body, prevention interventions. They can be reversal interventions in some cases, but why not use everything that we have in our toolbox? Why not use what we've learned from being able to do studies on certain medications and interventions and surgeries that can be absolutely life-changing as well as changing um, our lifestyles? You know, interestingly with heart disease, you're right, prevention is key. Having said that, I do think that it's interesting when I have patients who have active heart disease, angina symptoms, they can actually be improved when they have a more whole foods, plant-based diet. Interestingly, mm. intermittent claudication is a condition where you've got quite advanced peripheral vascular disease. You walk a few steps, you get sharp pain in your calves. These symptoms can be improved by changing to a whole foods, plant-based approach. I've seen that in my patients. I've certainly heard that from colleagues as well. And that's really important for people to know because many people really struggle. They have to take something under their tongue or a spray to help with shortness of breath if they've got active angina. Intermittent claudication, as I mentioned, is really debilitating these symptoms can actually be relieved. That's not to say that people shouldn't take any medications that they've been offered. They should, they absolutely should. But to know that you can actually improve the way that you're feeling day to day through eating this way is is actually really important because many people don't realize that. Actually, I really want to delve deep a little bit into the compounds in the plants that might be having these beneficial effects. Now, you mentioned one, which was fiber, and we know that that's very important. We aren't currently meeting our 30 grams a day recommendation, and that has a huge link because it works with our gut health, 70% of our immune systems within our gut, 90% of our serotonin is made within our gut. So that's a, a huge factor of one of them. But what are the other ones that people might not have heard of? So we've got polyphenols, which is one, but could you mention some other key players within these plant foods that are having these beneficial effects on our health. Yeah, sure. You mentioned the fiber and you've mentioned polyphenols. There are a number of polyphenols that can help to open up the arterial blood flow. And that's great for heart health, brain health, all the blood vessels in our body, really. And what are polyphenols? They are essentially sort of compounds within plants that can offer health benefits. They're actually within plants in some ways to protect them from the environment that they grow in, but they actually have remarkable health benefits when we consume them. And they essentially have a really strong antioxidant properties. They are electron donators, if you will, because all of the metabolic processes that we undergo, just breathing, being, cause oxidative stress because of the way that, that we create energy in our cells. And these electron donating compounds within plants are able to soothe that oxidative stress and reduce inflammation in the body. And so mm. they are really useful. There's, there's studies to show that the more plants you eat, the lower your C-reactive protein is, which is a marker of general inflammation in the body. Mm. And that can also be a pathway to various forms of chronic diseases that we suffer from in the Western world. So yeah, we've got things like anthocyanins and flavones and flavonones, and these are all foods that sort of, these polyphenols that are in foods like 
well, you know, everybody knows about blueberries, don't they? Blueberries are really <laughs> a lovely little little um, antioxidant bombs. Yeah. But you've got strawberries, apples, citrus fruits, all of the fruits and veggies, all the colours mm. of the rainbow. They will contain varying amounts of different polyphenols and there are thousands of them. Mm. And many of them we haven't even named yet and they work in synergy together to create these health benefits for us. And studies are also showing us that just having a polyphenol-based supplement won't do the same job. In fact, in some cases, it's been shown to be harmful. So the whole fruit, the whole veg, sometimes cooked, sometimes raw, depending on which ones you want to bring out, like for tomatoes, lycopene is often more concentrated when you've cooked it, but there are other benefits to having raw tomatoes. So it's amazing. In all their forms, fruits and veggies can provide amazing polyphenol benefits. I'm so pleased also that you mentioned about the supplements, which we are going to come on to in a second, because that is a really important concept with food being first, because all of these compounds work together in our bodies. They're not working together in a synergy unless you are deficient. So I definitely want to come on to the supplements within a plant-based diet that can be beneficial. But before we do, something that is a large chapter within your book, which is The Plant Power Doctor, you talk about skin. And I know many of my listeners listening will be really interested in this subject around skin health and optimization of skin health and why it's important and why it's linked with our nutrition and how a plant-based diet might actually help. So can you help explore this area of like, how can we have healthy skin? Yes, we talked about fibre, didn't we? And fibre is a good thing because not only does it provide the building blocks for healthy microbiome, you mentioned the immune system. A lot of skin conditions are mediated by our immune system. So if we eat lots of dietary fibre from fruits, veggies, whole grains, beans, lentils, chickpeas, these kinds of foods, the amazing thing is it provides nutrition and the creation of something called short-chain fatty acids. They break down into short-chain fatty acids with the help of our microbiome, which also feed the microbiome. They are fantastic fuel for our beneficial gut bugs. And what that does is that helps to modulate our immune system which means we're much less reactive to the things in our environment that we don't need to be reacting to, whilst also being able to fight infections and other pathogens that we may otherwise be exposed to. So it's a lovely synergy and balance that we can create. And when it comes to skin health specifically, you know, we can help ourselves from the inside out rather than just putting creams and lotions on from the outside in because these short chain fatty acids and this fiber content are so good at modulating our microbiome. It means that we are potentially less likely to experience problems such as eczema and psoriasis because we will have a much better functioning skin barrier than if we were to focus more on processed foods, processed meats, things like that. So there are definite skin health advantages to a plant-based approach in terms of autoimmune modulated skin conditions, but also acne. Many people kind of have heard, oh, maybe cutting dairy could help my spots, but they don't really know why. It is a big one and it doesn't necessarily help everybody, but there is a great body of evidence to suggest that it could help because dairy is quite high in the amino acid leucine, which is essentially an activator of a pathway called mTOR, which is an important pathway in our body to help growth, but it can also increase things like sebum production, slightly increase risk of certain cancers if it's overstimulated. And interestingly, dairy is one of the main potentiators of this mTOR pathway, which could potentially increase sebum production in the skin and increase risk of acne. So 
there is some potential links there. And I've certainly had many patients that have decided to make some plant milk swaps and notice big improvements to their acne. I'm not saying it's a panacea. There are other things involved, sometimes stress, sometimes hormonal imbalances, but there's absolutely no question that for a lot of people, dairy can be beneficial. So why not try and see how it would impact your skin and give it a go? I think that's the thing, isn't it? And we're going to go into if you are cutting out some food groups, what to do. But I think this is a really interesting, before we go on to that, is boosting romance. Now, this you wrote this post around Valentine's Day and I was immediately drawn to it and I thought I have to put this <laughs> into the podcast <laughs> because who doesn't want to know how to have a better sex life? And then I started Googling it and I just started seeing great headlines saying, do vegans have a better sex life, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, great question for Gemma. So can <laughs> well, you I can say old? yes. From personal experience, <laughs> they definitely do. No. <laughs> Another great anecdote. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Why did you get drawn to that post? So I was, it was actually, you know, it was Valentine's Sex Day. Sells. Sex 100%. sells. 100%. I did suggest to my followers that they might want to enjoy some aubergine rather than some steak on Valentine's Day because... (laughs) My favourite emoji. (laughs) Yes. Really because of material blood flow. We spoke about that in relation to the heart Mm. earlier, didn't we? How important Mm. it is to have great blood flow to the brain and the heart. But of course, the smaller blood vessels to the penis are much more susceptible to the effects of lack of blood and inability to supply oxygen to that area. And it's actually an early warning sign of heart disease. So say a man in his 40s, never had any problems before, but suddenly starts to get erectile dysfunction, he should really go to his doctor and talk about it because it could be an early warning sign that he is developing heart disease. Because those vessels are very small. They need to be able to fill up with blood in order to be able to sustain an erection. So there was a study recently in the Journal of Urology to say that arterial blood flow to the heart, brain and penis is really improved when you have a healthy plant-based diet. There was another research study I'd read at the time that showed that men who have a more healthy plant-based diet were reducing their risk of erectile dysfunction by about 14% overall, which is significant, especially when we consider that heart disease affects so many of us as we age. And also, we don't realize this, but there are actually sort of post-mortem studies to suggest that heart disease can start even as young as childhood and in our 20s. You know, there were post-mortem on young people who unfortunately, tragically had died from other circumstances, be it war zones, car accidents, and so on, that show those fatty streaks building up in the blood vessels, even from this very young age. And those are the precursors to those thicker plaques that can build up and then cause those white cells to come in and try and protect the vessel clumping together, more risk of blood clots. And then obviously, if you have a blockage in the coronary artery, it causes a heart attack. If you have a blockage in one of the arteries in the brain, it can cause a stroke. And these long-term chronic blockages can also cause erectile dysfunction. So it is important and perhaps it would encourage more men to eat plant-based if they realized it could actually have an impact on their sex life. It's known from research that women are more likely to adopt a plant-based diet than men. And so I think we can start 
telling them about the facts around sex life, then maybe that might increase their need to start having more plant-based foods. It is quite funny because I'm not plant-based myself, but I do cook predominantly plant-based foods. And it is quite interesting that anytime I do cook dinner, it is normally plant-based and people are always very surprised. And my father, who did have type 2 diabetes, who now doesn't have it from a diet change, when I started cooking him plant-based foods, he just could not get his head around. He was just eating plants without meat. And now it doesn't bother him at all. And he's actually like, oh, she puts lots of herbs in there and it's really tasty and it's quite spicy. And, you know, it's actually a really good substitute. And I think it's about changing that mindset, isn't it? That um, actually you can have a, a plate full of good quality protein that's delicious and nutritious all at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I actually focused on in the book. I wanted somebody who is used to their meat and two veg to be able to pick up the book, learn something new, and then have some starter recipes that would provide comfort foods similar to what they're perhaps used to. Because I think it is hard for people who have never really sort of prioritized a plant-heavy or a plant-exclusive approach. Mm. Interestingly, I know it's not a scientific study, but I think that's probably why they even made the Game Changers movie because it's very much about, oh, meat is manly and they wanted to try and crush that stereotype, which I think they did quite <laughs> quite admirably. But I wouldn't say it's a scientific study, but it was interesting when they talked about penile blood flow in that film. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> I did. I definitely have mixed feelings about it from all those kind of documentaries because there's a lot of cherry pit research as as you know but I do think they obviously go for the scare tactic to try and get people to actually increase a healthier lifestyle change and it is important I think to show both sides I think that one did show more one-sided but they were clever in how they made that documentary for sure especially yeah, when the, in the sex life. <laughs> I think the agenda was very much you guys don't realize how good plants are. So we're going to show you for an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to sell this story. And I think something that, I don't know if it was in Game Changers, I can't remember actually. Maybe it was, but there's a huge environment conversation. Obviously, we are in a climate change crisis right now. And sustainability is definitely a buzzword that everybody is talking about being more sustainable, whether it's food, fashion, so many different sectors. And so environmental impact is really having its moment. The United Nations say that industrial meat production is one of the most destructive ways in which humans can leave their footprint on this planet. And it's known that a plant-based diet can reduce emissions by up to 73% depending on where you live. However, there is a lot of confusion around plant-based diets and sustainability because, again, playing devil's advocate, the deforestation of rainforests from soy production, and there's lots of conversations around droughts caused by avocados and almonds from almond milk. It can be really confusing for an individual to actually understand what are they doing right and if they are switching towards more plant-based what are the more sustainable options that, that they can choose so could you help people understand a little bit more here around the environmental impact of plant-based diets and really how to navigate making the right and correct choices yeah I can see it is confusing and I think it makes a lot of sense on an instinctive level to eat locally, support local farmers, make sure that you buy seasonal products. That's a really great thing to do and it instinctively makes a lot of sense. But when you look at some of the data around what you're actually eating, 
it's interesting because the overarching message from the studies that I've read, especially the ones coming out of Oxford University, which I can come on to in a minute, are that actually what you're eating is probably the most important thing comparing it to, you know, where it's come from. So it's actually more environmentally sustainable to ship some blueberries from Argentina to the UK than it would be to eat a grass-fed beef burger from two miles up the road. And that seems quite unfathomable for people to sort of get their heads around. But when you look at it sort of more broadly, so I think, you know, transport accounts for about 1% of greenhouse gas emissions for food specifically. And most of the food is shipped rather than flown around the world. And when you look at the amount of emissions that come from land use, water degradation, land degradation itself, and the transport costs. It's interesting to note that meat and dairy production is sky high compared to other things. So it's good to sort of compare it to other things. You mentioned almonds. Yes, they take a lot of water to produce. And so if they're being grown in places like California, which are essentially pretty much desert Mm. environments, it's going to be really water inefficient to make almond milk. But having said that, the water used to make almonds is still almost half that for the water used to make dairy milk. And when you look at greenhouse gas emissions, land use and water use combined, there's really no comparison. You know, rice milk, soy milk, oat milk, almond milk, potato milk, hemp milk. There are so many other types. Yes. I mean, that's blowing my mind. (laughs) I read that in the press three weeks ago and thinking, wow, there's so many milk. Pea milk, tiger milk now. Yeah, there's Mm. so many now and they are over and above a lot more environmentally sustainable as a group than dairy when it comes to those things, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, land use and water use. There's really no comparison. I think we can sometimes get really caught up in some of the arguments around sustainability. And I would completely advocate supporting your local farmers. It's really hard to grow food. It's really hard. And I do think that our local farmers and growers play a vital role in being able to be more independent in how we produce our food. So I'm not somebody that's going to advocate always shipping everything around the world, but just looking objectively at the studies out of Oxford University, it's really clear to see that what we eat is more important than where it comes from. And eating more plants is probably the biggest single thing any individual person can do that won't impact their lives to the degree of having to buy solar panels or buy an electric car or not travel or not have children. It's one of those things where actually eating more plants is manageable and it's the easiest thing for any one individual person to do. I mean, yes, systemic changes are absolutely needed, but in terms of making a change for ourselves, that's probably the easiest thing to start looking at. Yeah, it can be so hard, can't it, to navigate this field. I think so much conflicting research that we read day to day. And I actually did a podcast on eco-anxiety recently because I remember being in conversations recently with a lot of people that I know have made the decision to not have children for the impact on climate change. And there's so many extreme ways that people are going to really help fight climate change and actually take a step in the direction and I think when we're looking at this research as well there is a really high percentage that actually just switching to plant-based foods is is a really positive step and I think sometimes people can feel overwhelmed by that and feel a lot of guilt by 
eating animal products. But I think what we want to get across here is just making small, simple steps and switches can have a massive impact. And I think sometimes you can all think, well, maybe I'm not doing enough just as an individual. But if every single individual made these steps, there would be a huge impact. And I think we can't underestimate each one of us making these simple steps towards helping climate change. Yeah, you're so right. And it's not about beating yourself up or feeling guilty. It's really about just thinking, okay, well, if this is important to me, let me try and do a few swaps here and there, make it manageable, make it exciting, make it abundant. Actually mm. look look at recipes that you actually think you're going to really enjoy. Mm. This shouldn't be something that you feel a burden around. I really would love for people to feel actually inspired to think, oh, well, you know, I know this recipe. What if I make a plant protein tweak to it? What can I add to it? How many mm. more veggies can I add? And it's a really lovely way of just being mindful around the things that you're eating, but also knowing that you know, you're doing something good for the planet too. So yeah, don't go with guilt. That never works. And that's not sustainable in itself. Yeah. We're talking about environmental sustainability, but personal sustainability, <laughs> you're not going to want to keep eating you know, a certain way if, it's just, if you're just feeling constantly bad about yourself. So please don't feel good about the small things that you do and you know remember that if we can all make those kinds of little shifts here and there then we can all make a difference and i think that's a really important message actually all making just those small steps can have a really big impact and we spoke briefly there about plant-based milk and it's something that i really wanted to touch upon because one there's been a lot of controversy with with a certain milk brand in the press a lot recently but when you actually divulge into the nutrition on the back of plant-based milk now they're all very different so this isn't an overarching statement to all of plant-based milks but specific ones sometimes we're thinking we're being very healthy opting for this but actually when you can look at the ingredients that's when it becomes quite interesting. And in some of them, you know, they are, the second ingredient is rapeseed oil. And arguably that is a vegetable oil, which by definition creates a lot of conflict to how actually healthy that milk is. So what's your views as a doctor around around some ingredients in a plant-based milk? I think it's interesting to look at the ingredients and it's helpful because, for example, with dairy milk, dairy is fortified with iodine, mostly from the cleansing vats that are used to catch the milk from the cows. That's where it comes from. So plant milk companies are beginning to catch up. And in the UK, we're quite lucky, actually, because a lot of brands do fortify with iodine, which Mm. is great because we don't have very many natural sources of iodine in our diet. So that's something to look at when you're looking at the ingredients. I think it's great to look at vegetable oil as an entity because what the overarching epidemiological data shows us is that having polyunsaturated fatty acids and monounsaturated fatty acids from foods and from vegetable oils overall in the diet is a potentially beneficial shift comparing that to consuming saturated fats. So I think there's probably a little bit of scaremongering when it comes to vegetable oils, when we try and compare saturated fat with unsaturated fat from oil. That being said, you know, if someone has a calorie restriction goal or they're consuming a lot of oily foods and not a lot of whole foods, then that may be problematic in terms of the overall nutrients in their diet. But 
I do want to highlight that a lot of the epidemiological evidence does suggest that actually polyunsaturated fatty acids and monounsaturated fatty acids from things like avocados, seeds, nuts, and vegetable oils are also included in that can have an overall beneficial effect when you're swapping out saturated fats from animal products and palm oil, which is predominantly, sorry, coconut oil as well, which is predominantly composed of saturated fat as well. I know there are some other types of fatty acid chains there, but yeah, it's an interesting one. I think also looking at the nutrient content, you know, rice milk doesn't really have a lot of nutrients in it. Whereas if you look at soy milk in terms of the protein content, that's pretty good. I think soy milk is probably the closest protein equivalent when it comes to dairy milk, if you're doing a direct comparison. And oat milk, is great. It does also contain protein and it's probably one of the more environmentally friendly ones if you're comparing Mm. all the different kinds of plant milks. There's a lot really. And also the emulsifiers, some brands, you mentioned looking at the ingredients. It is great to look at the ingredients because some of them contain quite a lot of emulsifiers, which some studies show are not great for our gut microbiome. Yeah, it's interesting. I think my overarching opinion on it is that Generally, plant milks are a good choice, especially if you can find ones that are iodine fortified. And if you're looking to give a child a plant milk, then I would generally opt for soy because it has an equivalent protein content to cow's milk. Mm, I feel like we should do another episode on that, actually, because there's a lot of discussion when it comes to what you might be missing out on a plant-based diet. You mentioned one, which is iodine, and iodine is very rich in dairy, and we are seeing an increase in deficiency in iodine, and that's linked to our thyroid. But what else do we need to be aware of if we are predominantly going towards more of a plant-based diet? Could you mention what we might be deficient in and what we might need to supplement more in and how to actually be aware of living it healthily and, and sustainably? Yeah, I did mention iodine. I think iodine deficiency is a big problem, actually. And it has been over the over the generations, which is why dairy milk has been fortified with iodine. It used to be that goiter was quite common in places where soil was not very rich in iodine. And that's Lancashire a large... Neck. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I was going to say, for yeah. anyone who doesn't know where that is, yeah. it's an inflammation of the thyroid around the neck. Your thyroid gland becomes enlarged and... Yeah, it used to be called Lancashire Neck because the soil in Lancashire was not very iodine rich. So bearing that in mind, there is a lot of fortification to our foods anyway that we don't really even realise. I think a lot of people that go plant-based are actually very health conscious people. And what's interesting there is I feel, and this is personal, this isn't data, that they're going to opt more towards organic produce because they're much more forward thinking in terms of their health and that they want to optimize it as much as they can. And actually with organic food, it's not fortified. So I think that's a really good kind of nugget just to put in there that actually if you are living predominantly a plant-based lifestyle and you're buying mostly organic produce, you won't have these fortified minerals and nutrients that you're actually talking about. Yes, and that applies to plant milks too. So if you're going to be buying organic soy milk, for example, it won't have the iodine fortification. So most dietitians would actually recommend a non-seaweed iodine supplement just to ensure that you know the amount that you're getting, about 150 micrograms. And interestingly, the Vegan Society has worked with dietitians to create a very cheap 
and easily available supplement that would contain things like B12, selenium and iodine and vitamin D. I think it's about £6.66 for three months worth. So it's pennies. It's probably the cheapest supplement I've ever seen. The idea is just to basically make a plant-based diet sustainable for people without having to think too much about it. So iodine, B12... Selenium and vitamin D it had in it. Just to point out that there are key nutrients in any dietary pattern and many of the things we eat are already fortified and supplemented. So certain margarines and cereals and plant milks and other foods will contain supplementation without a bread, as I mentioned, B vitamins. There's a lot of B vitamins and folate in bread. Mm -hmm. So yes, we are all consuming some level of fortification and supplementation just to kind of bridge those gaps. With a plant-based diet, if you are exclusively plant-based, B12 is an absolute must. You don't really even need very much, but it's crucial. You can get that from a supplement, I would recommend. You can get it in fortified foods if you were to do a chronometer and look at various fortified foods that you might be consuming. Chances are you probably are having a little bit of B12 here and there if you're having things like nutritional yeast or fortified plant milks and cereals and so on. But are on the side of caution and take a B12 supplement. It's easily available. You don't need much and it's crucial for the body. Vitamin D for everyone, I really do think, especially in the UK on a yes. grey day, which it is today and most days, you're not going to be making much vitamin D. So I would recommend a vitamin D supplement, D3 ideally. You can get a vegan version if you're interested from lichen rather than from sheep's wool. Omega-3s. We get great omega-3s from... That's my area. I'm so happy you said that. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Things like flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts. They're great sources of ALA, which is one of the plant omega-3s. And Mm. our bodies can use those to make the long chain omega-3s, but not everybody knows really how efficient that is. Luckily, epidemiological data shows that people who eat vegetarian and vegan diets don't have increased risk of issues such as dementia. So we know that clearly, although their omega-3 from fish oil is not going to be present, they still don't necessarily have any long-term health outcome negative results as a result of that. But I think, again, to err on the side of caution, knowing how important long-chain omega-3s have been shown to be for brain health, it Mm -hmm. makes sense to consume an algae oil-based supplement, which is basically where the fish that we eat will get their omega-3s from. So you know it's pure, you know it's the original source, it won't be containing any microplastics or heavy metals or anything like that. So it's a nice way of ensuring that you're getting your long-chain omega-3 without having to think. I do think that's so important. I mean, it's definitely an area close close to my heart and 25% of our cell membranes are made of DHA. So we do want to definitely be making sure that if we are consuming it in some form so really 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 helpful just to be aware of things that you might be missing out on ideally following a full plant-based diet so I think that sometimes can be lost in confusion and people might be worried about what should they be supplementing in and what should they not so hopefully that's clarified it for a lot of people so to wrap it up really how can people make these changes to their diet because behavioral change and taking these steps is essential and I think It was really interesting how you took the view on it because you did, again, a lot of your own research, first of all, which means you're becoming familiar with it. You were watching your partner do it. And there's a lot of familiarization to actually not be too overwhelmed too quickly. And so if people are listening to this and thinking, I'm really inspired by Gemma and her journey and the research that I've heard, how can people take these steps to actually implementing it in their life and doing it long term as opposed to a short stint? 
two approaches I would suggest is the first approach is to be kind to yourself and just remember that even the idea of it is a great first step. Gathering mm. your resources, having a think, not getting overwhelmed by having to change every single thing in your cupboard. Chances are a lot of the things you've already got will be great to start with. And then adding in a few more things here and there. Find your favorite regular meals that you like to make. Make a list of them and see whether there's any way to make them more plant-based. Even if you're somebody that would generally really love to cook with, I don't know, let's say beef mince, for example, and you'd be having a lot of things like lasagna or spaghetti bolognese or minced chili or whatever. Maybe add in some lentils, beans or chickpeas, other kinds of legumes, mix them in with your meat to start with, perhaps see if you can enjoy it that way. That's a really good point, actually adding it in first before you completely take it out. Yeah, that helps a lot of people because they just sort of become used to it. And then the palate also changes over time and you find yourself craving a lot more of these foods than before, especially if you've never been somebody that really ate a lot of beans or you may not be used to having those kinds of foods. So just taking Mm -hmm. it really gradually would be great. Rinsing your beans is helpful as well. If you're buying them pre-cooked and tinned, then giving them a really good rinse and a soak can help to reduce any initial bloating that you might experience, which is really common and normal Mm. as your gut bugs are adjusting to more fiber and it shows that your gut's going to the gym I suppose is is how you could look at it that's gut growth in a good way because you're gradually learning how to tolerate these foods and that's going to be good for your overall health so don't get panicked by the wind that you're going to probably start having when you start introducing these foods I think is it's a good point and take it slow take it at your own pace and discover new ways of feeling abundant I really want to emphasize it should be joyful Mm. yeah it should be exciting finding these ways to add in more plants for your health, your longevity, to help you feel good. And that's the other point I was going to make. So the second thing is find your why. Why is it that you'd like to make these changes? What are you looking to improve in your life? Is there something that you're hoping to achieve? Is there something that's really important to you, either in your family or more widely with the environment or with animal compassion? Is that something that's important to you? Are you hoping to widen your circle of compassion? Like, What is it that's making you choose these changes? And if you focus on that, that's also going to be really helpful because it's something outside of yourself that is hopefully going to sort of help keep you motivated where motivation will wax and wane. And it's not something that you do with willpower. It's something that you do with, I guess, a sense of your identity, things that are important Mm -hmm. to you. So that's another tip. Find your why I think is so important to every area in our life. Why are you making this change? And whether it's nutritional, whatever that change is, I think that's a really fantastic question to ask yourself. And that leads me on to a really ending question, which I ask all my guests. Is Gemma, what does live well, be well mean to you? It means going through life with a sense of love and gratitude, knowing that all the little things that you do have an impact on the people around you. Even something simple as a smile to a stranger and something as small as you know making a healthy snack for someone that you love. You know, little acts of kindness, they do spread and that ripple effect can change the world. So I think being aware of those little things that can really make a difference to your life and to other people is what helps me to live well and be well. I definitely think we need a lot more kindness, especially where we currently are in our world. So I think that's a really good reminder. Yeah, compassion and kindness is so, so important to our health. Mm, Absolutely. 
Gemma, thank you so much for coming on today's show. I'm sure there is going to be a stream of people that want to go and buy your book and look at you at social media. Would you be able to direct our listeners of your handles and your website and where they can find out more about you? Of course. Well, my handle on Instagram is Plant Power Doctor. And handily enough, it's also the name of the book, The Plant Power Doctor. So hopefully if you can just Google that, it should come up. And my website is plantpowerdoctor.com or gemmanewman.com. And there's loads of free resources on there for you to look at and enjoy as well. And yeah, it's been my real pleasure to chat to you, Sarah, today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. I'd honestly highly recommend do go and look at Gemma's website because what I love personally about your website is that you have so many resources. You have all the links to studies from your book on there. And some of the studies that you've mentioned today, you can actually find on your website. There's a whole host, I think it was like 600 studies or something that you've got on there when I was looking through, getting very excited. So definitely (laughs) do go and have a look if you want to know more in depth and obviously do buy the book because you can have really easy ways to help start implementing this into your lifestyle so thank you Gemma oh thank you and and thank you for saying that about the book yeah I appreciate that thank you no I absolutely love it especially having a dyslexic mind the color codes are very welcome in my world so yeah I definitely recommend it it's fantastic and thank you so much and I'm now going to go and very healthy plant-based lunch after this conversation Fabulous. (laughs) Enjoy. I will. And hopefully we can try and get you on for another episode, maybe around children's health and veganism. I think that'd be a really important one to talk about. Absolutely. I'll be there for it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I hope you enjoyed it. And for more information, please do head to the show notes where you can find out more about Gemma. Also, please head to thebewarecollective.co.uk for any resources regarding mental health, nutrition or lifestyle. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.